My name is Jim. I'm an alcoholic. I'm here because my life depends on it. My sponsor said that once, Kevin. He only said it once. I was sitting across the room from him, and I that that makes sense. That applies to me, and it's just been uh, been absolutely wonderful. When I was new, I used to enjoy speaker meetings. Because I would get to go to a meeting and not have to do anything and, and got credit for it. So some kind of guy credit for it for some ungodly reason. That was funny. Sit there and listen to him and watch the clock and wait for the meeting to be over and go out the parking lot, crack a couple beers, and be on my merry way. I never got this thing. It took me several years to pick up my first year. I was in and out of this thing, but today I know why. I know why it took me so long to get this stuff. I had a normal childhood as far as I can tell. I was born and raised in Phoenix. Played baseball, did all the normal stuff you're supposed to do. Got into trouble here and there, nothing more serious. But I remember one particular day, and I, I, as I was thinking all this stuff out today, I was wondering why I remember certain things and other things I don't. But I remember my brother shooting me with a BB gun when we were children. Nothing serious. And he shoots me and he runs up to you, don't tell mom, don't tell mom, don't tell mom. So what do I do? I'm going to go tell mom. This thing hurt. I was was holding my elbow and walking over to mom and she looked down at me. She said, don't be a crybaby. Oh my God. So I plotted my revenge. For three weeks, I waited and I waited for the opportune time and he was finally asleep on his back in the middle of the afternoon. I got my baseball bat and I nailed him in the gut. He just sat up like Frank, that Frankenstein movie where he just sit up yeah. real fast. I, I, I barely told him about it maybe three or four years ago, but he, he never knew. That was hilarious. When I was in the uh, junior high school, I kind of noticed something. I, I grew up in West Phoenix, and growing up with all my buddies, to me they were just my friends. Everybody else considered us a gang. So growing up with all my buddies and just uh, noticing a couple things, I remember my first beer. It was a 16-ounce Budweiser. And I did it because I wanted to impress everybody at that party. The neighbors, I call it the Kool-Aid house. Everybody goes to one house and drinks. So I was was trying to impress this girl, so I crack a beer, and I remember that warm feeling going down my throat. And everyone is just convivial, as the book calls it. But I noticed I might have a problem because I started drinking more than the other 8th graders. That uh, kind of got to be a problem. So I'm going along my merry way, doing what I'm supposed to do in high school, 16 years old, get my first DWI. I got my low rider and I'm going down Central Avenue and I got the back end jacked up with the hydraulics and I see the blue and red lights going. I go, wow, someone got pulled over. <laughs> So I'm cruising along, and the motorcycle cop goes in his PA system. White Impala, pull over to the right. I go, oh, my God. And I lowered the car, and there he was, flashing the lights at me. So he, he, he pulled me over. He had me sit on the floor so I wouldn't run. Ran my driver's license, took me to the police station down in the south side, and had my mom and dad come and get me. That was the funniest thing I ever saw to see. My, my mom was about that big, just driving my car home. Big old steering wheel, big old tank of a car, and dad just pissed off. So, 
No big deal. One DUI, 16 years old, I just got caught. No big deal. A little while later, I get kicked out of high school. Maybe I was uh, trying to make some money. I saw how easy it was to make money. So I started selling a little bit of weed. But I was always very careful about this stuff. So I would have other people sell it for me at other schools. Nothing major. Just just a little stuff like that. And uh, one of my guys gave me the money in front of a narc. We had a narc at our school, a narcotics officer. And he saw the, the transfer of money, so he started following me. He followed the other guy, and they busted him with weed, and they wanted to know who I was, and started following me around, and I confessed. They caught me. I, I had a, a habit of running. Whenever I would get in trouble in school, you just run. Just run like a bat out of hell. If they catch you, they catch you. If they don't, they don't. Most of the time, they couldn't catch me, but this time... They came into my science class, and they had a security guard at every exit from, from the science class to the office. They had everything covered because they knew I was going to run. It was funny. So I, get, I confessed to that. They kicked me out of school for half a year, and no big deal. I go to summer school with all my friends. Summer school was the place to be, man, because that's where all the cool people got kicked out of school. Now we had to get up at 7 in the morning and be at summer school for half a day. That was hilarious. So, I finally, uh, I'm getting close to graduation, and I get my second DUI at 18 years old. Still not a problem, no big deal. Driving around with my buddies, Jose Cuervo and Budweiser on December 23rd, and I remember the date because Christmas was coming up, and I would ruined Christmas that year for my family. But I went to a party driving around, and life was good, and... I, I, was, I drank by myself, and there's a little store on Adams a couple blocks east of the 17, a little Chinese store in that neighborhood. And, and if you look at it in the front, there's an outline about the size of a truck, a little bigger than a pickup truck, and I would swear I went through it. Bam! About 1, one or 2 o'clock in the morning, I was trying to head home. I just passed out behind the wheel. Had I passed out a couple blocks later, I would have went off the bridge on the intersection down on the 17th. So I consider myself very fortunate. So I'm 18 years old. I get that second DUI. Still not a big deal. Couldn't drive much because the insurance went through the roof. Around this time, a couple years earlier, I remember uh, a kid came into my life. I got my girlfriend pregnant. So now I have a, I'm graduating high school. I have a two-year-old son, and I had to, had to make some decisions here. Being the genius that I am, my dad had too many rules for me. I had, to have, I had curfews. I could only use my car this time and that time. So deciding to rebel, I joined the military. That's real good. So I joined the, I joined the Navy. I needed a place where I could drink, fight, and chase women. And that fit the bill. That was absolutely perfect. So I joined the Navy. Life is good. I'm making money. I'm bored, though. I'm, I'm, now, now I'm starting on the daily drinking. Because there's nothing to do. Sitting around San Diego without any wheels. Girlfriend and kid were in Phoenix. So I just went to the bar every night. Got lit up on that 3-2 beer. God, that stuff is awful. That stuff is just awful. Just horrendous. Just some of the worst hangovers I have ever had. And I couldn't figure it out, but, but it was that 3-2 beer. So 
So, in the military, it's pretty much, if you can do your job in the Navy, if you can do your job, they're pretty much going to leave you alone. So I was able to hide in this institution for a very long time. As long as I could get up and go to work, I was okay. Put some gum in my mouth, brush my teeth, go to work, I'm okay. I wasn't very good, but I was there. I just had to be there. So I stayed in the Navy for a while because I told myself if it would ever quit being fun, I would get out, and it just never quit being fun. I could do whatever I wanted. It was just, it was just crazy. I remember going to Singapore, and I'd... Uh, there's a, a disco type of deal, a, a, a rave, I think they called it. It's in a warehouse. A pitcher of beer in this place costs $30. $30 American. So the next night, we're going to get drunk before we go in this place. So we're sitting around at 7-Eleven just pounding beers, much cheaper, and then we finally go in there, and we get in there, and it's the normal stuff, man. It's just everyone's drunk, everybody's just going crazy. And then all of a sudden, I wake up and I'm in a jail. So I'm waking up in this cell. And I'm trying to piece together what happened. I'm not moving because I know I'm not in my bunk on the ship. Something's wrong. So I hear cars whizzing by. And I see this guy in the corner on a typewriter in a uniform, a cop or something. And I'm thinking, I open one eye because like, I'm real slick. I open one eye, look around. <laughs> going, what the heck happened? Why am I here? And I couldn't piece anything together, nothing at all. So he looks at me for a couple minutes, and then he leaves the room. And I jumped up, and the door was open. My cell door was open. So I walked out. I found a couple exits. I never ran so fast in my life. I was gone at least three miles, running and running and running. Held down a cab, jumped in a cab, and got it back to the boat. Just crazy. In Singapore, they don't play around with with, with um, tickets or anything. They just put you in jail and they cane you like that story was in the paper a while back. They just don't mess around with anybody in Singapore. I was very fortunate that day. So being a, the good alcoholic that I am, we're in Manila several years later, whatever, and we're getting taken to jail there too. So uh, as we're in the back of a Jeep, the cops have AK-47s pointed at us pointed at us with their finger on the trigger. I'm saying, oh, God, please don't let that, don't let us hit a bump. Please do not let us hit a bump. <laughs> so we, we go to the, the jail in Manila and explain what happened, and they just want us to make restitution on a cab and this and that and stuff. We just go nuts when we drink. So then uh, an, another instance, I was in Hawaii, and I'm not sure what happened, but a bouncer just beat the hell out of me. Must Must have been something I said or... I don't remember real real clear, but I wake up and I'm getting put in an ambulance. Then I'm taken to the, the Army Hospital there, and they're just calling other people, hey, check this guy out, check this guy out. Half my face was purple, just swollen up. And I had to ask somebody what happened, and they started laughing. I tried to take on one of the Samoan bouncers. <laughs> you got to be nuts, man. I thought I... And I think my intention was just to let him know I was there, just pop him once. But he just, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. So I make, I, I make it back to the boat, and I, I pretty much know how to lie these days. I got jumped. I got jumped in an alley, this and that, making up this tall tale. And we went out to sea, and uh, my boss goes, what, what really happened? I got, nah, 
Guys your size don't get jumped. Guys my size get jumped. What really happened? Uh, I was probably talking shit to a bouncer and beat my ass. So I'm going along this, and this is normal. Every time we go on a deployment, we go into these foreign ports, and I just go, I just get stupid. I'm just so fortunate that I'm here. So I'm going along, and I'm going along, and I get out. I get transferred to Beaufort, South Carolina. So I'm thinking about this stuff. In fact, and back up just a second. I was, I was getting ready to get out of the Navy, so I was going to take the cop test to be a Phoenix police officer. <laughs> Good idea, right? So I, I did it on a bet. I had my, my buddy had just passed the Phoenix police. My other guy just took the Mesa Police Department test, and it took him two times to pass. I said, you guys aren't real bright anyway. So they got really upset, and they bet me that I couldn't pass it on my first attempt. I, I waited the next time it came. It came to the Civic Plaza that year, and I went, and I took it, and I passed it. I go, this is cool. And it's a common sense test. So I passed it. Passing score was 70. I cut a 72, and with five veteran points, I got a 77. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy as hell, and I go down to take the physical training part, the monkey bars and jump the walls and all that stuff. So I go down there and I pass all that stuff. Now I'm celebrating. Next is the psych evaluation. And I'm happy as hell. So what do I do? I go to a bar. I'm shooting shots. I think I can drive home. Third DUI. Bam. So it just wasn't meant to be. I just take that these days. It just was not meant to be. So now I'm getting... That didn't happen. Now I have to hide this stuff from the Navy. And I just can't open my mouth about it or I'm going to get in trouble. And it's just... It's just horrible. So along here, I was, I was in Phoenix as a recruiter, and I'm starting to shake in the morning because I'm carrying on in Phoenix as I am overseas, and I did, you can't do that. So I'm waking up in the morning, I'm, I'm having to drink on the way to work because if I don't start drinking, I'm going to start shaking like the movie Leaving Las Vegas. I know what that feels like when you're just shaking like a leaf and you can't do anything. So I'm trying to get to work. I'm trying to get to work without getting a DUI because I'm so lit up from the night before. And I just, I knew I was going to get caught sooner or later, so I went to my boss. I think I have a drinking problem. So he, he tells his boss, and they decide to send me to a rehab. It's a Marine Corps rehab in Oceanside, California, Camp Pendleton. So I get there, and it's just, they're trying to run it out of us, man. That's all we did is run and run and run, and I hate running. So I get there, and I take on the role as this big brother, because I'm not an alcoholic yet. I'm not convinced. So I take on the role as a big brother, and I'm trying to make sure everybody's where they have to be, the uniforms are good to go. I was there for just to be a, a boss. I wasn't there to be an alcoholic. So I get through this rehab, and I actually stay sober for 14 days. 14 days because that's the amount of time I heard it took for the abuse to wear off. The 14th day, I'm standing by the toilet. I crack a Budweiser. I drink it. I don't throw up. I'm good to go off and running. But now i got to be very, very careful. Along the lines here, I'm, I learned that I'm visiting Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm visiting Alcoholics Anonymous because i got to get my paper signed. 
and I'm supposed to make a good appearance at work. So the first time I turn into my paper, the guy just glances at it and throws it in a file. So me being the genius that I am, I, I'm, stop, I'm not going to meetings anymore. I walk around the house, I get five different types of ink pens, and I'm just signing my own slip now, making up names and dates and locations and all this good stuff. So I'm good. Now, a couple years later, my mom passes away. And this, this is just... I always promised my mom I would stop drinking. I'm okay, I'm okay. And all she did was love me. All she did was love me and all I did was lie to her. Promising I would stop drinking. After she died, two people, two ladies that don't know each other, they said, hey, we've been looking for you. This was years later. Your mom came to me in a dream. And she wanted me to tell you to not to remember the promise. Okay, that was kind of weird. But when the other lady said the exact same thing, that got my attention. I think in the Bible it says something somewhere where he comes in two, so you know it's not a, a coincidence, something like that. I go, holy cow, this is, this is kind of weird. So now I get stationed and I'm, I'm on my way to Beaufort, Beaufort, South Carolina. And the disease just goes nuts. There's no reason for anything to be in Beaufort, South Carolina. It was just bad. So now I'm lonely. I don't have a vehicle because I got the DUIs. I don't have a driver's license, but I'm not going to tell anybody that. And I start learning what blackouts are. I never really understood what I thought I just passed out and don't remember anything. But this freaked me out. It was a Sunday afternoon. I went to the bowling alley to drink. And some guys say, hey, how, how you doing? The last thing I remember was going back to the barracks Friday night. And now it was Sunday. So apparently what I did was I got up on Saturday, went to the bowling alley, drank with this guy for a while, told him my life story, and don't remember anything. So Sunday he knows everything about me. I'm going, oh my God, this is a blackout. I'm, I'm going to do something stupid. So I, I'm trying to hide it, but you can't hide it, and they get really serious, and now I get a drunk on duty charge. That's kind of serious. So now I get a drunk on duty charge. I'm going through a divorce. My wife sends me the divorce papers because she's not having this stuff anymore. And uh convince them to let me go to another rehab, second rehab. Now I'm going to Fort Hood in Augusta, Georgia. It's an army rehab this time. Seen every Father Martin video ever made. That's all this rehab was. <laughs> Father Martin video after Father Martin video. And it was pretty neat. I, I learned, a couple, learned a couple things, but it was pretty neat the way he could talk to people and learn how to do stuff. And uh, it's very interesting. I remember going back and forth from Beaufort to Phoenix, home on leave type of stuff. I remember arriving in, in, I used to have to fly into Savannah because Beaufort didn't have an airport, and they don't sell booze on Sundays. Now we have a problem. So I, I was complaining to the cab driver. She goes, hold on, in that southern accent, but hold on. She went to the back of her station wagon and gave me a half a fifth of Bacardi. She had left over from the last fair. I go, oh, this is nice. That's the kind of stuff that happens to me. I, I remember checking in, and this is where I compare my going to any lengths. I mean, besides driving out to Tonopah here. 
going, <laughs> going to any lengths. I remember walking through this field where you get the little thorns, and I had to walk through this field to get to the gas station to buy a 12-pack. And I was going to walk back. I go, this is stupid. I'm going to be walking back here in a couple hours. So I bought two 12-packs, and I walked back to my room with all these thorns in my feet and all this stuff. So I have to check in the next day, and I'm just thinking, well, I can't waste this beer. So whatever I didn't drink that night, I had to finish that morning, and you're trying to go to work. This is the insanity of this stuff. <laughs> just going absolutely nuts. So now I get through my second rehab. I'm starting to take this seriously. And I'm thinking I'm going to need a higher power. God is much too busy. Much too busy to worry about me. He's got a world to run and do all this other stuff. This was my thought process. What can I use? So I remembered my mom was up there. And I had a lot of coincidences that saved my butt. A lot. I, I could be here for another three hours just talking about all the good stuff that happened to me while I was drunk. I heard God takes care of drunks and kids. And I truly believe this. So I figured if my mom's up there, she's the reason all these good things are happening. She's the reason I'm not in jail. She's the reason I'm not in prison. She's the reason I didn't kill anybody because she keeps, she's up there saying, give him another chance. Give him another chance. Give him another chance. And I did this. I truly believed my mom was my higher power up there watching out for me. And it was just, it was just a wonderful will, re, reason to have that. You would think I'd be sober by now. Not happening. So now I'm hiding it. I'm hiding it better. I, I show up drunk for work again. Now they're going to kick me out. Rehab failure. This isn't social services. We can't babysit you. We're getting tired of your crap. We're going to send you home. So they put me in, a, in Beaufort Naval Hospital one last time. And to this day, I think they gave me too, too many narcotics. I really think they did. I think they gave me a double shot. Because I was, I was laying in my hospital bed, and I'm trying to watch TV, and these cats are coming out of the clock. I'm going, holy cow. And then this family is watching my TV. I even got up and turned the TV so they couldn't see it. And I called the nurse's station. I go, this, this isn't right. And she goes, they always ask the same question, do you know where you're at? Yes, I'm in the Naval Hospital in Beaufort, South Carolina. I am not crazy. Just get the rabbits out from under my bed. <laughs> so, so they moved me closer to the nurse's station and just kept an eye on me after that. Okay, now I get through all this stuff. I get through this court-martial and all this good stuff. Now I'm headed over to the bar rain to catch my aircraft carrier around 9-11. And I checked into the, the, the Hilton at the Bahrain with all but a million other guys. And I don't remember leaving that room. I kept calling room service and all they kept bringing me was Johnny Walker Black Label and Red Label. And then it was time, to, three or four days later, it was time to get on another plane and I have no recollection of anything that happened. This type of stuff scares me today. So I finally make it on the plane. I finally make it out of there. And uh, I came back, I went on a deployment, and I came back, and I felt a sense of entitlement. Two rehabs, I'm still not an alcoholic. I felt a sense of entitlement, and they're getting ready to kick me out, so they have this court-martial for me. So 
I'm pretty much a goner. I'm pretty much a done deal. And I'd start, now I'm starting to go to meetings. So I'm going to meetings, and I ask this guy to, to speak up for me on behalf of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he doesn't know me very well, but I'll explain the program to these board members if that's all you need. I can't go there, but I'll call him on the phone. So I'm sitting there with the board members, and they're explaining what's going on and asking me questions and this and that. And It's obvious. It's a rehab failure. It's no big deal. You're gone. So he calls on the phone, and they ask him about the program, and he's talking about the program. Experience, strength, and hope, success stories. This is where when people are most desperate people, and he gives a very, he had like 30 years of sobriety, a very good description of Alcoholics Anonymous. So these board members are looking at my record. Now, when I'm not drunk, I'm one of their, I got tired of hearing that. When you're not drunk, you're one of my better guys. But they said that so many times. So looking at my record, deciding whether to send me home or keep me in. So I had to leave the room. They call me back, and they decide to retain me on active duty by the grace of God. So now I'm, 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 I'm heading back to a boat. They're not going to, but they agree to send me to one more rehab. Three rehabs on active duty is unheard of, absolutely unheard of. So now I'm going to my third rehab. This is the Navy rehab. My, my attorney talked him into, well, he's been to a Marine rehab, an Army rehab. He needs to go to a Navy rehab. <laughs> they bought it. I went to a, a Navy rehab in Norfolk, Virginia. And I remember sitting around in a circle with everybody, and we have to draw out this graph on how we got to that point and how the decline of our lives and this and that. So I got to take a look, and everyone else was talking about their graph and putting it in the center of the room. And I'm thinking to myself, these guys are nuts, man. These guys are absolutely crazy. No wonder they're here, because I still wasn't an alcoholic. No wonder they're here. Oh, my God, if I had those problems, I'd, I'd be here too. So I lay out my life. I put my graph in the center, and afterwards in the barracks, they all agreed I had the craziest life they had ever heard of. But I didn't see it because I was living in it. It was just unreal. So I'm going to this third rehab, and I understand unmanageability. Unmanageability. I, I finally figured out what that meant. I get out of this rehab. They give me orders to the Enterprise. That's an aircraft carrier on the East Coast. There's this Applebee's. I, st- I still don't have a driver's license. So I'm, I'm at this Applebee's, and there's a shuttle that goes from the carrier to Applebee's. So I'm, I'm happy. I get off work. I get on the shuttle. They drop me off in front of I mean, there's a mall there, but it drops me off in front of Applebee's. One particular day, I'm sitting there, and the bartender goes, are you okay? I go, why? Well, they control the drinks, how many drinks they've served you by a computer on the cash register. So they go, according to the, to the cash register, you should be dead. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't kick me out of here, man. I love this bar. If you want me to leave, I'll leave, but do not kick me out of here. And they just let me go. 3,000 dudes on an aircraft carrier, okay? The drunks tend to find each other, Okay. <laughs> So I'm, I'm hanging around with all these drunks, and it gets to the point where they don't even want to hang around with me because they don't know what the hell's going to happen. When I get drunk, it's just stupid. It's just absolutely stupid. So I finally retire. I think I'm actually retired. I'm sitting around six months, sitting around, drinking every day in my apartment. Divorce is done and gone. 
I become unemployable because I can't get up. I become lonely and lost and I'm living in my own crap and poor me this and poor me that. And it's just I finally, I finally couldn't do it anymore. I finally got to that point of, of incomprehensible demoralization. It was just, it was just ridiculous. I knew through all these rehabs that I had to get back into Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew this. I remember my last hallucination. I don't know what happened, but I think it might have been a dream. I was driving around looking for a place to hide because I walked to my, I got to my apartment. And there were people inside partying, and there were all these bugs around me. And I couldn't get rid of all these bugs. And I got in my truck, and to me it seemed like I drove all night. And the sun was coming up, and I came to, and I was laying down on the bench of, of my truck. I go, holy cow, I think that was a, I hope to God I wasn't driving. But I just, I finally reached that point. It was just, it was just crazy. I called for help. I called my ex-wife. I need to get to a detox. I need to do something. Lark had, Lark had seen me at least four or five times. St. Luke's detox had seen me a couple times. All, All they had to do was change the date. That's all they had to do. So, I go to Maryville Hospital for my last detox. And it's just, I felt something inside of me. January 2nd, 2005 is my sobriety date. I felt something had changed. I felt I could not go on this way. And I started, I started going to meetings, and I found a home group. And if there, I'm sure everybody noticed the laughter that was going on in here before the meeting. That's what attracted me. I walked into this meeting, and everyone was laughing, and I thought it was going to be doom and gloom, but they were enjoying their lives. That's what attracted me so much. So I started going back, and I started going back, and I started listening, and I stopped listening to myself. Because in my head, I was picking out all the differences. I'm not an alcoholic because I haven't done that, or I haven't done that. I haven't. But I started filtering that stuff out of my head. and started. I heard somewhere to start looking for the similarities. So this, by this time, things are getting better, and I'm going to different meetings. I'm taking the bus all over the place, and I'm starting to get involved in my sobriety. It took me 18 months to get a sponsor. I was so afraid of my last drunk. I kept coming back, but I wasn't going to ask for help. For eight, 18 months, I sat on my hands. I very rarely shared. I just wondered what these people had, but I didn't know how to ask for it. One of the best things I've ever learned in this program is how to ask for help. I've never done that before. I never needed to do that before. So now, I'm with PJ, and we're having lunch. And he goes, Jim, who's your sponsor? Uh, I'm kind of sponsoring myself. So no. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. I was looking for a sponsor with high heels and a nice chest and long hair and all this crap, and it doesn't work that way. I picked the meanest guy I could find, the meanest, meanest bastard I could find, because that's what I thought I needed. So I pick out um, Ski, his name's Ski, and he told me his story, how he he was part of the motorcycle gang, and his face was that way because they got a rifle butt and jacked him up, and all this other stuff, and he was passionate. He was passionate about Alcoholics Anonymous. I love to listen to this guy talk, because he could make people cry. I mean, just out of 
He was here to get sober, nothing else. He wasn't here for a relationship. He wasn't here to socialize. He was here to get sober, and he would just, just, his, his uh, conviction in his voice was so deep. You just had to listen to this guy. I said, you need to sponsor me. And we got along. We got along for a little while. And, and, but he lived on one side of town. I lived the other. So we didn't have a whole lot of FaceTime going on. So that ended up going, going south. So then I come across Kevin. Now I got about two years sobriety. And I asked Kevin to be my sponsor. And Kevin goes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some You're, you're going to have to do some work. But I loved what this guy had to share. This guy could simplify anything. No matter what problem I had, he'd just make it simple. It was just the way he spoke and the way he talked about the program. And I liked listening to him, but I also liked watching, watching the type of stuff that he did. So I'm going along now. I'm chairing, meeting. I'm chairing a meeting at St. Luke's Detox. I've been to St. Luke's Detox four times. And I loved, I would go to church and then I'd go to that meeting. And I loved walking up that ramp because I remember all the times I walked up that ramp where I had to hang on to the rail. I had to hang on to the rail or I was going to fall. And I, I'd go to that meeting and after a while I just, I picked up every chip I've ever had except my last one there because I discontinued the Sunday morning meeting. But I just went there every Sunday. So now they don't have a chairperson. So I volunteered to chair that meeting, and I go, I, I want to know the secret. So being a genius that I am, I'm going to get all my speakers are going to have 25 years plus. I want to know the secret of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I, it doesn't last very long, but I, I find as many people as I can with 25 years plus, and they basically said the same thing. They all treat their sobriety like they did their first five years. They go to meetings, they get involved, they do all the stuff we do in our first five years, and that's how they've remained sober for so long. So now, I got around five years, and this job falls out of the sky. I go to check on my sister, and my sister was not doing real well, and I'm sitting next to her at a bar at Chili's, and I'm having dinner, and the guy next to her, after I leave, goes, who was that? That's my brother. Retired Navy, furniture mover. He says, we're looking for guys who can run guys. So he calls me up and offers me a job. I like to golf a little bit. His company was called T&B Equipment. They set up and tear down the bleachers for the pro golf tour. So he offers me a position. I go, this sounds very nice. The money was there, but I need to go to a meeting every night. If, you can't, if I can't go to a meeting every night, I can't take this job. So he goes, after you get off work, I could care less what you do. But you're going to have a company truck and a company gas card. You can do whatever you want. So I take this job, and I get to go to meetings all over the country. Just absolutely wonderful. I'm thinking to myself, oh, good, I get to carry a message all over the country. Lucky me, my head just gets all blown up. <laughs> but when I thought about it, I go, God, God needs me to hear messages from all over the country. So that's what I did. I was in Maryland, and I got to hear the girl who used to drink hairspray. Oh. Ivy League school, well-to-do family, couldn't be seen buying booze, so she would shoplift hairspray just for the... I've never even heard of that before. Oh. I got to meet... I got to go to a meeting in L.A. where you needed 10 years or more to share. I, oh. thought, I thought they were kidding. So I'm oh. sitting there, and a newcomer's asking for help. He's pleading for help, and they shut this guy down. 
I go, holy cow, I, I don't think that's the way this is supposed to work. But my head, I'm thinking when I get done with this job, I'm going to come back to Avondale five years or more to share because I had five years. That's, that, that's, the kind of my, that's the kind of mind I have. And I think I was in Arkansas and I heard about God. Whenever the subject of God comes up, no matter who your God is, Jesus Christ, Allah, Buddha, no matter what he is, they all send their drunks to Alcoholics Anonymous, so they all have that in common. But that's the type of stuff I got to hear all over the country. And it's just been that sort of stuff. So now I'm, I'm hanging out with Kevin. And he did something that impressed me. Whenever someone would pick up a 24-hour chip, he made sure they left with a big book. So I still carry that on today. No matter where I'm at, if someone picks up a 24-hour chip, I'm going to buy them a book or I'm going to make sure they have a book. Kevin is the one that taught me the most about Alcoholics Anonymous. He not, he not only talked about the program, but I got to watch him do the program. He took me through the steps. He, uh, he introduced me to my Friday night meeting. It's called the Corazon. It's down in Phoenix. And these guys are going to jail or they just got out of their jail. They're about 15 newcomers. And they're absolutely, they're punks, they're thugs, they're roughnecks, just like me. I felt at home. I, I still have that meeting today. I feel at home when I'm with these guys because I'm not going to listen to any of their bullshit because they're trying to bullshit the best bullshit around. But I have a job now where I end up all over Phoenix, Carefree, Scottsdale, Gilbert. And if I hear somebody I like their share... I'll ask them to share down at the Corazon, so I've got to hear some of the best people I've heard. So I get to hear their story, so while I'm helping them, I'm helping myself, and I'm listening to all this great sobriety. And it's just, it's just absolutely wonderful. Now, keeping all this in mind, it's like I was on my way to Reno when I was back with T&B. I was on my way to Reno for something, for that job, and Kevin calls me up. And Kevin's got about 21, 22 years by now. And says, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about checking out. I said, what do you mean? Can't take it anymore. And I'm driving a one-ton flatbed down the road. So now I'm freaking out. What do I do? And that's where I've never trusted God so much. The next word's out of my mouth. Can I have your Harley? That's what I asked him. Just... <laughs> Because I am a smart ass and I wanted to take the edge off, he goes, no, I, no, my brother gets that. It's okay. But I, in my mind, I was freaking out. I was going absolutely nuts. But I had to just give it over to God. I got to Reno. I found the first AA meeting. I think it was the Diamond Club. I found the first meeting of Alcoholics Time. I sat there and I was able to share this. I was able to share this chaos that was going on through my head. That's what this program has taught me. He didn't, he didn't do it, but that's just the type of stuff that he taught me. The things I've learned along the road, along this path I've been going on, it's just, it's just like the song Hero. They talk about a hero where a hero can make somebody feel good about themselves when the newcomer comes in. They're down, they're lonely like I was, they're tired, they're disgusted. And you just learn to give them a little bit of hope. You build a little bit of rapport with them. And you just give them a little bit of hope and make him want to come back. This is the type of stuff that, stuff that Kevin taught me. 
I was when I was on one of the aircraft carriers. It's just I got to meet those firefighters from 9/11 on the on the pictures. And I got to shake their hand. I said, "Hey, hero, good work." And they go, "We're we're not heroes. You guys do this stuff every day. We just did it that one day." And that's the type of stuff that I can pass on. The stuff I learned about de- decision making. I learned in this program all the dilemma is in making the decision. If I truly have faith in God, if I truly trust God, there is no bad decision. God's going to take care of me no matter what I decide. So all the dilemmas in my own head, weigh the pros and cons here and the pros and cons there, it, does, it just doesn't matter. I make the best decision I know how, the dilemma's gone. I just move on with my life no matter, no matter what the decision is. Okay, so we're going down the road, Kevin dies. I get a phone call from Keith. Kevin finally finished up his, ba- his battle with cancer. And this guy was miracle after miracle after miracle. I would sit in his living room and smoke cigars, and he would just tell me all these great things. Insurance and experiments, the doctor was working on him, and it's working here, and it's working there. But it was just miracle after miracle. So I get the phone call that he dies. I'm going, oh, my God. And I was alone just like that again, just gone. So I sit down and I cry a little bit. I go, what would he want me to do? What would Kevin want me to do? So I go try and help a newcomer. One of my buddies is trying to get sober and I can't find him, but I end up at another member of Alcoholics Anonymous' house. And I spend the day with him and I tell him what's going on and I'm just sticking close to the program. When I'm by myself, there's no telling what I'm going to do. But I was so distraught, God put that person in my life for that one day and I didn't drink. And I didn't go nuts and I was able to calm down and I was able to go home and just relax. See, it's just the things that Kevin taught me and the things I've learned in these rooms by other members of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you want, I've learned if I want to hear a message... If I go into a room and I'm looking to hear a message, I'm, I'm going to hear a message. This is the type of stuff I can talk to newcomers about. If I'm not there, if I don't belong there, if I don't think I'm an alcoholic, I'm not going to hear anything. I'm not going to hear anything worthwhile because my mind is already geared that I'm not an alcoholic. I can relay that so well because I lived it for so long. So getting into service work, I'm chairing, I was chairing that meeting at St. Luke's. And now I'm still chairing that meeting at the Gold of Sown, but I learned. I'm reading a book by Mother Teresa now, A Simple Path. And I learned when I'm helping a newcomer, I used to think by helping the newcomer, I'm helping him, but I'm helping myself. And that's all well and good. But in the book I learned, I'm also helping God. Now when I'm doing God's work by pulling that guy out of alcohol, alcoholism, when I'm carrying my message, God is smiling. That's the type of stuff that keeps me coming back for service work. That's the type of stuff that fills my heart with joy. Just going down the road, I was going to go to Awatuki to see this guy because he's struggling. And just driving down the road, tears come out of nowhere. I don't know where they stem from, but just tears of gratitude. And that happens every once in a while, and I can't explain it, but it's just awesome. I learned things like... Uh, don't take anything personal. If somebody calls me a name, am I an ass? No. 
They just cut me off. They're having a bad day. I learned how to not take things personal. When I was new, I thought everybody was against me. I thought when you laughed during my shares, you were laughing at me. How dare you laugh at me? I'm spilling my guts and you guys are laughing at me. That's bullshit, blah, 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 blah. They're laughing because they can relate. They've gone through that stuff. They know what you're talking about. I didn't know this stuff before. And I was talking to a... To another friend of mine, we're talking about fear of success. So what the hell is fear of success? He says, there's no such thing. Somebody I respect in the program, there's no such thing as fear of success or fear of failure or fear of her or fear of that. It's all fear. It's all fear. You're still living in fear. How do you get out of that? Page 84 tells me what to do. I don't have to live in fear if I don't want to. The book I was taught is a textbook. It's not a novel. I didn't, before I'd read it once, okay, I read it. When you go to three rehabs, you read that book quite a bit. But I never studied it. I never examined it. I never picked it apart. Now I can do that. It gives me every answer that I need. <coughs> the definition of hope. I learned to look up words because I want to know the definitions, not the interpretations. I, I learned to look up constitutionally. We drink for one reason. I don't use we very often in my shares, but we drink for one reason. Constitutionally incapable of being honest with myself. It's read at every meeting. I thought it had something to do with the Constitution. What the hell has that got to do with Alcoholics Anonymous? But when I look up the word, it explains why. We know the right thing to do, but we still don't do it. And that's what I had to get honest with. I have to look up the... the the definitions, because if I'm speaking to a newcomer, I want to come off like I know what I'm talking about. So I have to look this stuff up. The definition of hope. The emotional state which promotes a belief in a positive outcome. Okay? I want to believe positive things are going to happen. That's hope. That's what I live in today. I'm an alcoholic. I don't know what's going on. I know God's doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. That didn't make any sense to me. But when I look back, when I examine the problem, when I do what I'm supposed to do, I get miracle after miracle in my life. It just keeps getting better and better and better. I learned to get on my knees and pray. And uh, I remember being in a few meetings, and these guys were 17, 23, whatever, a number of years. They come back in crying because they got drunk again because a dog died, because she left, because they lost their job for whatever reason. And Kevin goes, ask him. I don't know if I read it or if he said it, but ask him. And I've never met anyone who's got drunk on a day where they got on their knees and asked God for one day of sobriety. So guess what I do every morning? I get on my knees and I ask God for one day of sobriety, just one. Everything else will take care of itself. I truly believe everything happens for a reason. Absolutely everything. I didn't know what that used to mean. But now it's just this. this. Whenever you ask me how I'm doing, I'm going to say full of joy because that's how I truly feel today. I was rescued from this despair. I was rescued from this demise. I was just rescued from a hopeless life. The book tells me God is everything or God is nothing. So if I truly believe that, I don't have to worry about anything. I just don't. I read a few books along the way, A New Pair of Glasses by Chuck C. I was in an airport, and I was afraid of airports, because every time I relapsed, I was in an airport. 
for a dollar, you get another shot. Hell yeah, put it in there. Okay, every time I relapsed, well, most of the times I was in an airport. So now I have this healthy fear of airports. I was working for a, a mining company. We had to fly from Salt Lake to Phoenix, and I got on the phone with Kevin. Hey, we have to fly. Just relax. Just do what everyone else is doing. Don't go near the bar. I made it through that day. But now I have to go to another airport. And I was absolutely just living in fear. Oh, my God, I'm going to relapse. I have all this time and all this crap that goes through my head. But I was reading this book, A New Pair of Glasses. And it teaches me about alcoholism. It teaches me how to think differently. So I walk into the bar. I get a plate of nachos and a Coke. And I eat them and I no longer have this fear of airports. Now as a plane's taking off, I look out, out the window and it's one of the most beautiful sunsets I've ever seen in my life. That's one of the books where I finished and automatically went back to the first page and started again. I love that book so much. I read all of Don Miguel Ruiz's books. He's got a whole series of books about the Toltec philosophies that have to do with recovery and just getting out of the state of mind. I read a lot of Emmett Fox. The stuff I've learned on how to live life is so unreal. I thought this stuff was about drinking booze, and it's about so much more. Every January 2nd, I pick up a few coins. Okay, I put one in my pocket, and I put one on my mom's grave. She didn't get to see me sober, but she knows. That's the type of program this is. My hope for all of you is that you all get these tears of joy that I'm talking about. It's absolutely wonderful. Thank you for letting me be here. Thank you.